Church family, it's good to see you this morning. And I hope that you have come ready to meet with the Lord this morning. Because we're going to dive in his word and we're going to meet with him and we're going to see what he has to tell us this morning. And and so I'd invite you, if you've got your Bible, we're going to go ahead and turn right to the book of James chapter 5. James chapter 5. We're going to pick up in verse 13 here in a moment. If you don't have a Bible or uh, maybe all you've got your phone and it's a little too distracting, please invite you to use the Pew Bible in front of you. And if you actually just don't have a Bible, period, please take that Bible from the Pew home with you. That'd be our gift to you. As we come to the end of the book of James, church family, James goes back to a subject that he starts the whole letter off with. Remember, he starts the letter saying, count on all joy, brothers and sisters, when you encounter trials of various kinds. And if you can remember back with me to what we meant by trials there, James uses a word that is broad to reference any kind of hardship, affliction, suffering that you or I may experience. It could, be, it could be a suffering because we are Christians and for our faith. It could be a suffering because of pain or sickness in the body. It could be a suffering because someone just doesn't like your personality. It is a broad word. And there is this theme of suffering that runs throughout his letter as he's writing believers who are facing very real hardship and affliction. And James's concern has been that both as they face that affliction and as we today face uh, trials and suffering of various kinds, that we do so, that we walk through and live through that in such a way that we will know the abundant grace of God and be found faithful before God in the way that we live and move and breathe. And so we come to chapter 5, verse 13, and here's what he says. Is anyone among you suffering? He must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He must call for the elders and be the pastors of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if that one has committed any sins, they will be forgiven him. So here's what he says. He he all of a sudden opens up the door wide open. He says, is there anyone among you who's suffering? And again, that word for suffering there, it's broad. Is there anyone among you who who in their inner person are are feeling the, the, the sorrow, the anguish, the pain of affliction, of suffering? Is there anyone having a hard time in the room today? That's what he says. If so, and then he gives a command, that person must pray. The response to that affliction, the response to that suffering, that person must pray. That person must call upon the Lord. And they themselves must do it, not anyone for them. And he says, is anyone cheerful? And it's a word that For all the times we talk about how joy in Scripture means something different, not just happiness, this word really just means, is is anyone amongst you happy? Is anyone anyone in here today feeling a sense of gladness in their heart, in their inner person? If there is, then that person must sing praises, must declare praise to God. Maybe that's through actual song. Maybe that's through singing 
Uh, just as we just sung. Maybe that's singing privately. Maybe that's singing to a song on the radio. Maybe that's expressed through prayer of thanksgiving. If there's anyone glad, they must pray. Here's, here's what he says. He says what other writers of Scripture have said in this way. Whatever circumstance you find yourself in today, brothers and sisters, pray and, ma- pray and give thanks. Or maybe Paul would say it this way. Rejoice always. And pray without ceasing, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So he gives these examples, and he gives a third example that demands a little bit, a little bit of a focus to walk through. He says, is anyone among you sick? And when he says sick there, he means sick. Is any one of you facing a sickness? Now, as you dig into the various words here, sick, that person needs to call for the elders. Uh, it mentions down, restore the one who is sick and in English, we translate both words as sick, but they're actually two different words. What you get the picture here is not someone who, who simply has a common cold, but someone who is facing an illness that is debilitating them, that has placed them in a place where they can't come to the pastor's office for counsel. They need the pastors to come to them. He said, is anyone amongst you sick? Then This is what they should do call the elders, that is the pastors of the church, and then the command is that the pastors are to pray over that person, and that's the primary directive, that the pastors are come to pray over that person, and secondary to that, to anoint them with oil. What do we mean by anointing with oil? It's it's an interesting thing if you really dig in, because this is only one of two places in the New Testament where there's a mention of anointing the sick with oil. What are we referring to? And if you want to go in and chase that rabbit hole, there's people who will come up with all sorts of different things. Simply put, the anointing with oil is just a symbolic gesture to say we we are praying and setting apart this person, asking for the Lord to do something. It says this is to be subsequent to the prayer. The prayer is the primary directive. And it says the prayer offered in faith, literally the prayer of faith, will restore and it speaks to someone being brought back to health And the Lord being the one who brings that healing, the Lord will raise him up. Now, I want to be clear in what this says here for a second so that we don't get distracted. The primary focus of this passage, as we're going to see in a second, is how do you and I, how do we as, as individuals, as a church family living in a broken world where we're going to experience suffering and hardship of various kinds, because of the reality of sin in this world, that suffering, anything from persecution to, to lack of health to personal struggles, you can go on down the line. How do we walk in such a way so that we as a church body walk in unity and fellowship of the Spirit and so that we as a church body and, and individuals bear fruit through our lives for eternity where we lay up in our time on earth treasure in heaven? How, how do we do that? That's really what the focus is. And what he's doing here is trying to give a wide array of examples to call us to that. But because of ways this passage in particular has been twisted, we just need to clarify what is being said. So I want to be clear. When, when James makes this statement, if anyone is sick, let him call for the pastors to pray over him. And the prayer of faith will restore this is not... This is not a foolproof, guaranteed, 100% of the time promise 
that if you're facing a severe sickness and you call for the pastor to pray for you, that God's going to grant you healing every time. That is not what this is saying. This is not some kind of name it, claim it, manifest, if you just believe hard enough, kind of prayer. So let's be clear. God can heal. He is the great physician. He can restore to life any person who is facing great sickness, and he delights to do it through prayer. That healing can be instantaneous and supernatural without any medical intervention. That healing can take place over a long time and and can absolutely be because God chooses to use the laws of the creation He's established and the use of modern medicine and doctors to bring it about. Both God can use to heal. But we do not find in Scripture a promise that every time we are sick or hurt bodily that God, if we will just pray about it, will automatically heal us. Paul has a debilitating, some kind of, for the rest of his life, um, debilitating condition in his body that he says in 2 Corinthians, he prayed three times, God, take it away from me. And God said, no, I won't take it away from you. My grace is sufficient. Paul will mention, it's all those little details in some of his letters we skip over, but Paul will mention in in several of his letters. He mentions in 2 Timothy 4, we left uh, Trophimus, we left him in Miletus because he was sick. He was sick. God, God didn't cure him from his sickness. In fact, we know of the fact that there were days Jesus healed many people and there were many people who were sick Jesus didn't heal. And the danger, if you come in and say, well, this is a guaranteed promise that if you just have enough faith, if you just muster up enough spiritual belief, God will heal you, it means this. If you pray for God to heal someone and God doesn't heal them, then it means one of two things. Either God isn't who he says he is and does what he promises, or it means your faith isn't good enough, both of which will wreck you. And that's not what is being said here. He is, James is, James is simply stating a condition for a people who lived in a day where there was not modern sanitation standards, where there was not access to modern medicine and doctors in all places, to run a fever and to be found could be a serious thing. What he is describing here is a situation in life where you are facing overwhelming odds without much in the way of options for what to do about it. He says, what are you to do? You're to call that the elders may pray. Now, here's, here's the specific thing in here, church family. He says specifically the prayer of faith. We'll dive into that more in a moment when we apply, but what do we mean by the prayer of faith? Well, remember what faith is. Faith in Scripture is not I sure hope this is true, so I'm just going to close my eyes, put my foot out, and kind of blind luck, wishful thinking, throw myself out there. That's not faith. That's called blind faith. It's called wishful thinking. It's not faith. Faith is not mustering up enough emotional, that's not faith either. Faith in Scripture is simply this. It is, it is when we exercise, when we completely trust and depend, when we set the weight of our being upon that which is true, but unseen. The prayer of faith then is the prayer that is driven by a confident trust in who God is 
and what God can do on the sole basis of the fact that his word says that's who he is and that's what he can do, whether we feel it or see it or our circumstances seem to confirm it or not which means the prayer of faith is not going to be driven by my wishful thinking and it's not going to be driven by our will, but the prayer of faith is going to be driven to pray in confidence God's will. And sometimes it is God's will to heal through prayer and sometimes it is God's will to not heal. So this is what he says. The purpose of this section is to give an example to where the people are called to pray. And not only that, but look what he says. Sometimes that sickness the person has, if it's the result of any sin they've committed, those sins will be forgiven them. He's, he's, and be clear, he doesn't say all sickness is because you've committed some sin. He says there is some sickness, though, that could result because you have walked in sin. We see this, this is in 1 Corinthians when Paul talks about the Lord's Supper. He says, some of you are sick, you're getting sick, some of you have even died because you are taking the Lord's Supper sinfully. And this is God's discipline on you. Or if you were here Wednesday night and we looked at the book of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter five, both of them individually lie to the Holy Spirit and they drop dead. There are some times that sickness or even death can be an aspect of discipline but he doesn't say that every time you're sick, that's what it is. So we just want to be clear here. And by the way, just side note, this passage is also not to be used to say, well, I'm feeling a little under the weather, so I'm just going to pray about it because Jesus said pray about it and, and not go to the doctor. That's not what this passage is saying. If you come to my office and say, Pastor, I've had a splitting headache for the last four days and I keep praying about it, but God won't do anything. My first question is not going to be, how's your faith life? My first question is going to be, well, did you take some Advil? And maybe because you trust that God has created certain things in nature to work in a certain way, you can trust that there are certain medicines that God would use to touch your headache. So this is not advocating against modern medicine or doctors or anything like that, but it's describing a situation. Is anyone suffering? Is anyone glad? Is anyone facing overwhelming odds? They must pray. Or if they're unable to pray, they must call on those who can pray for them. And here's what he says, therefore, verse 16, in light of this, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. And by the way, that word for healed there is not a word referring exclusively to a physical healing. It's describing a, a holistic healing. There may be spiritual healing that needs to take place. There may be relationships that need to be healed. He says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. And then he makes this statement, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much, or there is great power for, for accomplishing things in the prayer of a righteous man when it is put into effect, when it is acted upon. Let me summarize it. He says, when a righteous person prays, the emphasis being going back, the prayer of faith, when a righteous person prays in faith, that prayer is powerful. He says, here's the example, Elijah, a man with a nature like ours. You know what that means when it says Elijah, a man with a nature like ours? Elijah, who raised a widow's dead son to life. Elijah, 
who, as it'll tell us in a moment, prayed for three years that it wouldn't rain and it didn't rain. And then when he prayed that it would rain, it did rain. Elijah, who prayed and called down fire from heaven. Elijah, this great prophet who did wondrous miracles, put on his pants the same way you and I do, one leg at a time. There's nothing special about him. There's nothing unique. He's not, he just was a normal human. And he prayed earnestly, or quite literally in the Greek, it's he prayed with prayer. And it could be a reference to the intensity or the fervency with which he prayed. But real simply, it's just a reference to say all he did was pray. That's all he did. He prayed with prayer. He didn't go jumping around and dancing. He didn't go, go throwing off some crazy. In fact, that's, that's what all the prophets of Baal do. If you go back to, to 1 Kings chapter 18, they're, they're running around and jumping and cutting and doing this and doing that. All Elijah does is pray. He prayed with prayer that it would not rain and it did not rain on earth for three and a half years. Then he prayed again and the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. He provides this example of of a man who's just like we are, no different. But a man who, if you go back and you look at the story of Elijah, was yielded to the will of God, who understood the will of God and, and what that meant for how he should pray, who prayed the will of God, and through whose prayers God performed acts of power and wonder that quite literally did something that even with all our scientific advancement, we still haven't figured out how to do. There is no technology that can stop it from raining for three and a half years and then on a dime make it rain. But prayer can. And so church family, as, you, as, as, you, as we process this passage, as we look through it, how, how do we respond? He says, if anyone's suffering, if anyone's cheerful, if anyone's sick, if anyone's overwhelmed, how do we respond? How do we respond as individual believers? How do we respond as a congregation in a day and age where all of a sudden you, you pull up the news and it says, FBI memo leaked, targeting traditional Catholics as, domestic, as potential domestic terrorists. And by traditional Catholics, what they mean is those who would hold to a biblical position on the sanctity of life and God-designed sexuality. And then if you read the article, the person commenting on it says after they target the traditional Catholics, they'll come after the traditional Baptists. That's intense. What do you do in a day and age where the government may be very quick to turn? That's overwhelming. What do, what do you do in a day and age when inflation is really making it hard to put what you need on the dinner table? And jobs are being cut at companies. And maybe you face a layoff. What, what are you doing? How, how, how do you respond when your body aches and hurts and you can't do and be as active as you once were, what, what do you do when you're trying to raise your family with all the challenges of the modern world? What, what, we can go on and on and pick out all different examples of hardship. What do you do? How do you respond? And how do we respond to living and moving in a world like this in a way that preserves the unity and fellowship of the Spirit among us in a way that demonstrates we love and care for one another and in a way that, that will allow us to lead lives not driven by the riches and wealth and the things we can achieve in this world, but a life that bears fruit for eternity? How do we respond? 
We respond by confessing our sins to one another and praying for one another. That's how we respond. That's what James's point is here in the passage, that in the face of a world broken and ravaged by sin, that we pray with righteous faith at all times, that we seek reconciliation for any sin we're guilty of against one another. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another. He starts with confession. So understand, here's the real reality, church family. I'd love to live with rose-colored glasses and just believe that all of us who've been saved by grace through faith, who've come to that point where born sinners, born in rebellion outside of a relationship with God, that we arrive at a point somewhere in our life where the Holy Spirit has begun convicting us that we are in fact sinners who deserve a just punishment, who are separated from God, We hear the gospel message that Jesus came, that Jesus lived the life we can't, that Jesus died the death and took the punishment we deserve, that Jesus rose from the grave and he offers his salvation to any who will respond to that conviction in repentant faith. For Jesus to reconcile them to God and make them a Christian. I would love with rose-colored glasses that any of us who fit that bill in this room that we would just all love Jesus so much that there would never be any issues that come between us. But reality is our salvation, our righteousness that we've been given in Christ, our holiness, God's still working it out in our lives, which means there's going to be moments where we say something dumb. There's going to be moments where we We act in a way we shouldn't towards one another. There's gonna be moments when someone does it to us and then we're tempted to be bitter and to hold on to a grudge rather than forgive that person or deal with it. Here's the reality, church family. There are going to be things, and I've mentioned it. If God desires to to use us for eternity in this world, you better believe the first and primary way Satan will come against us is to try to bring all sorts of petty, dumb little stuff to make us antagonize with one another. And so if we stumble, if I do something sinfully against you, he says, confess it. Go apologize. Go own it. Go own it in honesty. Don't don't go, well, I'm sorry if you might have been offended. Go and say, I am so sorry. I said this. I did this. I know this hurts you. I was in the wrong. Will you forgive me? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, if someone, if you've sinned against someone and they, they have that against you, stop offering your offering at the altar of the Lord. Get up and go set it right with them. We are to confess to one another. Now, we can abuse this. This doesn't mean that you've got to confess any and every sin that you ever commit to someone. Okay, we don't hold to the idea. And by the way, when when you confess, you confess directly to the Lord. You don't confess through, you don't have to have someone else to confess sin to. If you're in Christ, Jesus is your high priest. Jesus is your mediator. You go straight to God. God, I'm in the wrong. There's gonna be sins that happen in the quietness of our heart this passage is not saying you've got to get up in front of the church and walk in front and get the microphone and confess every sin you've ever done this week. It does mean you need to be faithful to confess to the Lord all your sin. What this is referring to is specifically sin that we commit against each other. That if I really have done something truthfully sinful to you, it's not, it does not suffice for me to just say, Lord, I'm wrong, you forgive me. I need to go set it right with you. And so the question that it leaves us is, is there any sin that we've committed against someone that we need to confess and go reconcile with. 
Is there somebody in here that we've gossiped about, that we've said something wrong about? Are we holding a grudge or withholding forgiveness or on down the line? I don't know. The Spirit will have to touch your heart and mind to know. But if any of us have done something against another, the clear command today is go confess and set it right. Now, that's one of two aspects. Here's the second and primary aspect of, of the passage in, the, in living in this world where we will face suffering, where we will face happiness, or we will face overwhelming challenges. We are to pray. He must pray. He must praise. Therefore, pray for one another. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. We must pray. So what is prayer? Let's just be really simple. Let me give you a simplistic answer from the whole counsel of God's Word. What is prayer? Prayer is the means by which we communicate with God. Prayer involves praise, praising and adoring God for who He is. Prayer involves thanksgiving, showing a heart of humility and gratitude for what God has given. Prayer involves confession. Prayer involves petition, asking God to move, to do things. Prayer involves lament, both weeping with God and expressing sorrow before God. Prayer involves silence, where we're simply before Him, still listening. Prayer involves fellowship. Now understand something, church family, prayer is the basic means to which we we fellowship and relate with God and and all of these things, but prayer is not a speech. And you say, what do you mean, pastor? You got to talk. You got to speak to pray. Yes. What I mean is prayer is not some formal professional speech. Oh, pastor, you just pray so beautifully. I wish I could just pray like that. That's what I mean. No. Prayer is not a matter of how eloquently you can speak to God. In fact, the passage we're going to look at next week in Matthew 6, Jesus condemns the belief that proper prayer is a matter of how eloquently you can articulate your prayer to God. That's what the Pharisees were all about. Prayer is not some impressive, formal, uh, eloquent of speech. Prayer is simply your speech as best you can put your heart into words, communing and communicating with God. Prayer is also not some formula. It's not some formula which we memorize or some formality which we only offer at a mealtime but but nowhere else in our life. In fact, by the way, if you say, oh man, prayer, that's just just really overwhelming. I, I don't know how to word it. Guess what? Jesus quite literally says, keep your prayer short and simple and to the point. This is what it prayer Prayer is the way we commune with God. Well, why must we pray? Why must we pray? Why is that what James, as he comes here to the end, why must we pray? Well, one, just understand, church family, if you're in Christ, it is what God expects. It is quite literally God's will, according to 1 Thessalonians 5, it is God's will for our life. You say, Pastor, tell me what God's will. What does God want me to do today? He wants you to pray without ceasing. He wants you to pray. He wants you to live a life that is marked by prayer. It should not be said of only a few believers, man, they were such a prayer warrior. It should be said of all believers because it's how our life is to be marked by being in a place where we are constantly in and out of prayer. 
God expects it. Not only does God expect it, Jesus, God in the flesh, he demonstrated a life of prayer for us. As it say in Luke and Mark, as was his habit, means something you do the majority of the time, as was his habit, he went and got alone in a deserted place and prayed. He prayed throughout the night on occasions. He prayed before making decisions. We see Jesus praying in thanksgiving. We see Jesus praying in petition. We see Jesus praying in dependence. We see Jesus, where does he go before the trial of his life commences? To the garden, to what? To pray. And in the passage we'll look at next week, he doesn't say if you pray, he says when you pray. Jesus both modeled and expected that it would be a normal part of our lives to pray. And this is why when you turn to the book of Acts, you find in the early church, and the first expression, what, 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 did the, what did the early church look like? Well, it says they were devoted, they were committed above all to four things. The apostles' teaching, that'd be the right preaching of the word of God. To fellowship, that's more than just a potluck, that's the actual care and concern and unity and bond we have with each other. To the Lord's Supper, the remembering through the Lord's Supper of what Jesus did on the cross. And through wonderful choir specials and songs of praise. Actually, that's not what it says. And that's not a knock. I love our choir. I love our songs. But it says they devoted themselves to prayer. They prayed when things were good and they were gathering each night. They prayed after they were first arrested and they came, they came back and realized this, is, this, this mission is going to be a challenge. We're going to face real opposition. They prayed. They devoted in, to prayer even when it might cost them their life. James gets martyred. Peter's thrown in prison to be killed the next day. And where do you find the church when Peter is released by God? They are so deep in prayer that they don't even bother to go to the door to see who it is. And when the one girl who does comes back, they don't believe because they're so deep in prayer, even though they are directly under persecution in their gathering. They were devoted to prayer. And, and by the way, Saul, I, I forgot this, but Saul on the road to Damascus has the encounter with Christ. He gets to the city and it says the first thing he does is he prays. He was found in prayer. This is the pattern. Why must we pray? God's will for our life is prayer. Jesus modeled prayer. Prayer is necessary, church family. If we're gonna have a healthy life, if you wanna know what it means to walk with God, pray. We find in Daniel 9, prayer was directly tied to the prophets receiving the word of God to deliver to their day. We find in Ephesians 1, Paul prays that we would have a spirit of revelation of Jesus, meaning that we would know him and know his presence and experience him. He prays in, he prays in Romans 12, he commands that we be devoted to prayer. In Ephesians 6, prayer is key to spiritual warfare. And in Philippians 4, prayer is tied to experiencing freedom from anxiety. Colossians 1, prayer is key to knowing and discerning the will of God. In Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says in 3, he bows his, his knees that pray for the saints that they may know what is the height, breadth, depth, and width of the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And he says, in knowing the love of God, be filled with the fullness of God. Prayer is vital to our, our, our growth as believers and experience of God. We cannot and will not walk with God in any level of intimacy if we neglect prayer. Amen. We need to know what to pray and how to pray. And by the way, we're gonna look at that in the next two weeks. We also need to know why to pray. We're looking at that now and when to pray. We'll see that in a moment. Prayer is vital if you're gonna have a healthy relationship with God. 
Not only is it vital if you're going to have a healthy relationship with God, but why do we pray? Because prayer is powerful to accomplish the will of God in this world. Do you see that in the text? It's clear. Prayer possesses a power. There, the prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. In the life of Elijah, prayer brought the dead son of a widow to life. In the life of Elijah, prayer called down fire from heaven. It shut the rains up in heaven. It produced rain from heaven. Prayer even brought restoration as Elijah cried out to God in his deepest and darkest moment of depression. Prayer is powerful. Prayer is powerful, church family, because prayer petitions the one who is almighty. Prayer is powerful for the worship of God. Prayer is powerful for the wisdom to make right decisions. Prayer is powerful for the discerning of God's will. Prayer is powerful for the confessing of sin and freedom from sin. Prayer is powerful for the comfort of the suffering saints. Prayer is powerful for the healing of sickness, both physical and spiritual. It's powerful for the resurrection of the dead, for the exercising of demons. Prayer is powerful for the moving of mountains. It's powerful for the stirring of hearts of kings and queens, for the toppling of wicked regimes. It's powerful for the healing of our land, for the opening of eyes and piercing of hearts. It's powerful for the salvation of the lost, for awakening of a people, and for the revival of the church. Prayer is powerful. Prayer is powerful at all times, in all places, for all people, because God is powerful at all times, in all places, and with all people. And church family, perhaps our weakness as congregations in our country is not because we haven't figured out the right way to speak. It's not because we don't have eloquent preachers or learned theologians. It's not because we lack the resources or we don't have enough creativity to speak to the culture. Perhaps our weakness is because we are not marked as houses of prayer. That's why I brought the song thing up. How often do we pray as a congregation? Sure, we pray to open, we pray to close, we pray to transition but do we really just stop and gather and pray, pray for one another, petition, humbling ourselves? Listen, I do think God's word, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, will turn from their wicked ways and pray, I will hear their land. I think that's a good promise. I don't think the reason God doesn't heal the land is because God's lacking on his promise. It must be because we are not humbling and repenting and praying. Amen. Listen, it's, it's hard to be faithful to pray. Let's just take one example. It's, it's hard to always remember to pray for our leaders, but it sure is easy daily to complain and make fun of them. We look at culture and it seems demons are at play, but church family understand we don't fight demons with grumbling, complaining, and sarcasm. Scripture's clear, you fight the supernatural battle on our knees. Why do we pray? Because prayer is powerful. When do we pray? He says we pray in all circumstances. Are you suffering? Are you glad? Are you facing hard situations? Parent, are you struggling with, with how, to, how to raise your children? Are, are spouses, are you struggling? And, and what it looks like to be married? Students, are you struggling with a classmate who opposed you? Whatever the circumstance, pray. When do we pray? At all times. God never intended prayer to be an afterthought or a fallback plan or a formality. It is the first and primary duty of, of, an, of the act of fellowship in the life of a child of God. Now often we may 
hold back from prayer. Maybe, maybe we just, we think prayer, we, we're just not eloquent enough for God to hear us. Well, that's, we've already seen that's not what it means. Or, or maybe we struggle to pray because there's been times we've asked God for something and he, he didn't seem to give it. And so now we doubt, does prayer really work? Listen, there may be a many reasons why we ask God for something and we don't seem to get it. It could be that we lack full knowledge of what his will is and we ask for something that's not in his will. In which case, if we're really gonna walk in faith, we have to trust that his will is good and not our will. It could be that we asked in immaturity. We asked, according to James, with wrong motives. And so God didn't give it. It could be, it could be that we asked with our hearts filled with doubt. James says at the beginning, if you remember, if you ask for wisdom, ask in faith, ask in that confident dependence because the one who doubts should not expect to receive anything. There's a lot of reasons we may have asked for something in prayer and it not have happened. It could be that we've given up on praying what God's told us to persevere and keep praying. We'll look at that in two weeks. But just because we might have prayed and asked God for something that we don't see a tangible deliverance on does not mean God is not powerful and prayer is not powerful. It may mean there's something that needs to be exposed in our hearts. Maybe we don't pray because we like the feeling of being in control. Oh man, we gotta reach these people. Let's come in here and by the way, I've been part of many of these meetings. We gotta we gotta reach this group of people. All right. Pray to open us. All right, good. Here we go. Let's talk. Whiteboard. This, 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 and this. Ooh, man, we're feeling productive. Is prayer not productive? But if we're honest, some of us think it's not productive, which shows in our hearts we don't really think of prayer as God thinks of prayer. We must pray because God expects it, because prayer is powerful. We must pray at all times, and we must pray in righteous faith. Now, what do we mean by righteous faith? He says, the prayer of a righteous man will availeth much. He says, the prayer of faith will heal. There's one of two options for righteousness. Either we mean the righteousness that Jesus declares and gives us, his righteousness, because none of us are righteous on our own. And that is true. The primary way, the reason you can pray to God as Father is through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus has made, if you are in Christ, made you righteous. That's why you can sit at the table of God and look your Father right in the eyes and say, Father, and proceed to converse as a child. But in James, James focuses not on our righteous standing, but on that righteousness actually lived out in our life in a life of faithfulness. Not a life of perfection, but a life of faithfulness. A life that's faithful when we mess up to confess and repent. A life that's faithful to take God seriously, to stand where he stands on every issue, to speak what he speaks, how he speaks. It speaks to, when it says the prayer of a righteous person, it speaks to the fact that to a person walking, seeking to walk in humble rightness with God, that person's prayer is powerful. That person's prayer is powerful, which means this, the power of our prayer will be directly inhibited by the willful and habitual sinfulness of our lives. If there is sin that we continue to hold on to, that we refuse to repent of and turn away from by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, that sin will weaken our ability to pray. And by the way, remember sin is anything that falls short of God's character. So sin can be sexual immorality. Sin can also be worry. 
pray as righteous people. We're to pray the prayer of faith. I mentioned what prayer of faith is earlier. Praying the prayer of faith is praying confident on God's character, at God's word, in spite of what we see. It's not praying our wish list, and it's not praying based on the confidence of our emotional state in any moment. No, we pray confident in God's character, confident in who His Word reveals Him to be. Which means, church family, when we pray, we don't have to convince God to pay attention and hear us. Why? Because we should be praying confident that the God we pray to is the God who made us. That the God who we've spent the story running away from is the God who pursued us. That the God who we wronged is the God who sent His one and only unique Son out of His love for us to set us right so He could adopt us back to Him. We pray to a God who delights to hear the praises of his people, who, who delights to hear the prayers of his sons and daughters. We pray to a God who relates to us not on the basis of how well we've done and performed, but on the basis of his grace. To pray the prayer of faith means we pray confident of who God is, which is why living unrighteously also robs our prayer of power because when we live habitually and willfully in a lifestyle of sin, we are demonstrating that at least in that area of our life, we don't really believe God's will is good and His way is right, which is a lack of faith. Pray, praying in righteousness and in faith means that we pray to pray God's will. We pray. It means, church family, we've got to ask ourselves, are our lives today marked by prayer? Is prayer our primary response in life or is prayer our secondary or an afterthought? It means we'll need to make prayer, time for prayer in the closet. Maybe today the simplest thing is you go, I don't, I don't really ever stop, get alone with God and pray. Can I encourage you? Maybe every day this week, try to schedule 10 minutes where you stop and get alone and you spend 10 minutes praying. Start simple. By the way, and we'll see this next week, prayer is not natural to us. It's why the disciples, when they heard Jesus pray, they said, Jesus, please teach us how to pray. Prayer is something you have to grow in as a child of God. It means we need to make time. The passage says, therefore, pray for one another. It says, call the elders, have them pray over you. Church family, we need to pray with each other. We need to ask each other. Maybe this is what you need to do today. You need to ask somebody around you, maybe even your own spouse or child, how can I pray for you today? And then if you want to take a step further, don't just ask, how can I pray for you? But then say, can I pray for you right now? I'll never forget when God taught me that lesson at camp one year, having a friend share what God was doing in his life and really having some hard things. And then I said, well, I'll be praying for you. And I just felt like the Holy Spirit said, well, that's great. You will be praying for him. Why don't you just pray with him right now? 
Maybe we need to ask how to pray for with people. Maybe we need to ask how to pray with people. Church family, understand, if we are going to be a church that makes a dent in the darkness of our land, it's not going to be because we have the greatest staff. It's not going to be because we have the best programs. It's not going to be because we have the flashiest things. If we are going to make a dent, it is going to be a fight that we must fight on our knees, first and foremost. And so right now we're in the process of revamping the 24-7 prayer ministry where the aim is to have every hour of the week one of our church members taking that hour to pray for our church and for our community and for our world such that the entire week there would never be an hour where someone in our church family is not praying. You can see the banner right outside on the wall. I'd love to have two banners completely filled. We have more than that many adults in our church. And the days to come, I'm going to ask you to sign, if you will, for an hour. If you've already signed up to recommit to your hour, it means we need to show up when we have prayer gatherings. We have weekly prayer gatherings, Sunday morning for those that are able, at 845 on Monday nights for those that are able. There are going to be some prayer gatherings. We've got one coming up on Thursday, the last Thursday of this month, praying for the University of Texas. We must be a praying church. And part of the application of this as church family is when you hear that we're gathering to play, pray, please make it a priority to come and to pray. I cannot help but wonder... was it just a month and a half ago America stopped every every sports fan in America stopped and watched as medical personnel revived a Buffalo Bills player twice on the field there were calls for prayer just like there are anytime a tragedy occurs but because this event couldn't be super politicalized there weren't too many rebuttals to well prayer why just pray even had anchors praying on television and we've watched that man has made a supernatural, remarkable covet recovery through the use of medicine. I cannot help but wonder, when you study the book of Acts and you see supernatural healings take place at the hands of prayer, it is always to open a door for a proclamation and witness of the gospel. Perhaps God has opened a door for us to be able to go into our communities, for us to be able to first before going pray for our communities, for us to run into neighbors, coworkers, classmates, how can I pray for you? Would you let me pray for you right now? Perhaps that is the starting point in our culture for being able to share the gospel. And perhaps God has served us up an unbelievable opportunity. Church family, understand, I believe God wants to use us in so many ways in the days ahead. But if we are going to be used by God in this world, it's going to have to be as a unified body. And if we're going to be a unified body, we're going to have to confess to each other when we mess up. And if we're going to be a unified body that bears fruit in this world that has suffering of all kinds, it will only be because we, His people, prayed. The question is simply, will we pray? Father, we move now into this time of invitation. Holy Spirit, you know how you're moving. You know how you're stirring hearts. You know who knows you. You know who needs encouragement. You know who needs to confess. You know who in this room or watching online doesn't know you and needs to come and repent of their sin and, and, and begin a relationship with you in your grace. You know. We look to you. May your will be done. May our hearts yield themselves to what you and how you would have us respond.
It's in your name I pray, Jesus, and to you we look. Amen.